Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Everything is on the table. That's what E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, said today about the potential for more legal action against Donald Trump if and when he defames her client again. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that case tonight. Conservative attorney George Conway is standing by here in Washington. He's the person who introduced Carroll and Kaplan, and he's got the email to prove it. Plus, legendary Democratic strategist James Carville is coming up in just a minute to talk about how the looming general election is anything but normal and the danger associated with talking about it in normal terms. But I do want to start tonight with something that E. Jean Carroll said just this morning that really stuck with me all day. What was it like being in the courtroom with Donald Trump? Well, uh, it was terrifying uh, until I got there. Uh, the weeks leading up to it, no sleep, you know, couldn't eat, uh, couldn't do it. And then I sat down. Robbie said, good morning, Miss Carroll. Can you please spell your name for the court? I spelled my name. I looked out. There he was. And it was like he was like nothing, like an emperor without clothes. All my terror leading up to that. And there he he's just something in a suit. He was like nothing, as she just said, like an emperor with no clothes. She was scared. She admitted that. But when she saw him in that courtroom, she realized he was nothing. Eugene Carroll is not a political strategist. Don't go down that road. She never has been. She's not giving advice to the Biden campaign. But what she said there may actually offer some wisdom about Donald Trump. She revealed something here that is important to keep in mind as we all barrel toward the general election. Because Trump might act strong. He might seem scary at times. He certainly hurls insults and throws around violent threats every day. But he is not big and strong. He is, in fact, small and weak. When push comes to shove, he is just not that tough. Trump is kind of like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. You guys all know that movie. With all the bombast, all the theatrics, all the drama. But when you pull back that curtain, he's just a guy in a suit facing 91 charges across four different criminal cases. Even the argument that Trump himself is making when he embraces dictators in his stump speeches, by the way, like Viktor Orban, Kim Jong-un, and Vladimir Putin, and says he would be a dictator on day one, none of that, none of it is a sign of strength. Any dictator out there, or even a dictator in waiting, like, say, Donald Trump, is desperate and willing to do anything to seize and maintain power. Dictators want to control the people they govern because that's the only way they can hold on to that power. But despite all of this, he's convinced a lot of people in this country that he is strong. I mean, he's on his fast track right now to the Republican nomination. We can't deny that. So the question for Democrats is really, how can they pull back the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz? How can they make voters see him for what he really is? And the way that E. Jean Carroll saw him in that New York City courtroom and talked about it this morning— 
To that point, The New York Times is also out today with new reporting that sheds some light on President Biden's reelection strategy, which is to make the general election a referendum on Trump. As The Times put it, in a race without historical parallel, a contest between two presidents, one of them facing 91 criminal charges, Biden is making an extraordinary gamble, betting that Trump remains such an animating force in American life that the nation's current leader can turn the 2024 election into a referendum not on himself, but on his predecessor. And they go on to write, Biden's team and his top allies plan to paint Trump as a mortal threat to American government and civil society. I mean, first of all, that's all a reminder all of this is, that none of this is normal. This is not a normal matchup. It's not a normal election year. The race is not going to be a bunch of side-by-side fact sheets comparing policy plans. That's old, quaint politics. This is not going to be a debate like we saw between Barack Obama and John McCain or Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. This is going to be about the threat of Trump to your rights, to our country's founding principles, and about his willingness to do just about anything to hold on to power. That is what the mortal threat is, that desperation. Because what E.J. and Carroll described this morning, this small, weak defendant in the courtroom in a suit, that is actually a large part of what makes Trump such a threat. He's desperate. He's willing to do anything to get back into the White House and to stay there. We've already witnessed that. So his smallness actually is what makes him scary. It makes him capable of doing the things he says he wants to do to our country. And he is telling us what he wants to do over and over again. He is desperate enough to do it. That's what's scary. And that is also a reminder of why, as much as everyone watching right now might be tired of hearing about Donald Trump, believe me, I get it. I'm tired of talking about him. But we need to talk about him more, not less. Starting us off tonight is Democratic strategist James Carville, who I've been waiting to talk to since I watched The War Room many years ago. It's great to see you here. So I want to just start there, because you've said this, and this really stuck with me, and I could not agree with it more. I mean, this is not a normal election. We can't treat it like that. But in your view, how should people, there's no historical parallel, how should people be talking about it out there? Well, first of all, Donald Trump is an adjudicated rapist. Uh, that's in, in the words of the judge. By the ordinary definition, actually, then maybe he's just a sexual assaulter, but been found by a jury. He's also mm-hmm. an adjudicated business fraud. Mm-hmm. This is not normal. And, and so he must be identified as that at all times. And if the press is go, well, Trump said this, Biden said that, Biden said this, Trump, no, no. It, it, they have to be reminded at every juncture. This is, you know, when I grew up, and uh, I was in college during the civil rights era. That's how bold I am. And you know what Pulitzer Prize winning journalists didn't do when Martin Luther King said something? They didn't go to Bull Connor and get a response. They printed what King didn't. They won Pulitzer Prizes. And there's a lot of these journalists, and you work with them, you know a lot of them, Mm -hmm. they just can't wait to normalize this. They can't wait to have drinks and yucks with Jason Miller uh, or Steve Miller and just act like everything is just, you know, it's it's a Clinton and Dole, it's Obama and Romney, and we want to have our fun just like, you know, you and Jim did. No, that's not what it is. That's not it at all. We can't let them do that. 
not policy speeches. Now, you are pulling off a pink college sweatshirt, so I don't call yourself old. I'll say that. <laughs> now, I, I want to, there, there's a debate. I'm, I'm sure people ask you this all the time. My friends ask me this. People ask me this as well on TV. Why doesn't President Biden go after Trump on being a sexual assaulter? Why doesn't he go back after him on all of these legal troubles and legal turmoil? And you and I both know well, there are lots of levers in a campaign. There's the candidate, there's paid media, there's campaign spokespeople. How should they be approaching this and going after Trump on these legal issues? And how should that be the same as what the president's doing or separate then? I would tell the president and his campaign this, we got your back, dude. We're going after him with a meat cleaver, okay? A, a oh. rhetorical meat cleaver, if you will, but yeah. that's what we're going to do. And the president can go out, talk about what he's doing on infrastructure, the tremendous progress he's making, 40,000 new projects around the country. He can talk about other things, but uh, he doesn't—we can handle this. At, we, can, we can do this at, at, at a little bit lower level, and we have to keep— the heat on. We got to remind people of what's at stake here and let the president, and his campaign go about and doing the things that they can do. They, I know most of those people, they're all quite talented. They're all quite good. We need to quit coughing about the staff work and get on and let's get this train moving and get and save this country and save this constitution because that's really what we faced with here. It, it is what it's about. So a meat cleaver on the outside, but let the president focus on other <laughs> well, things. Yeah, he, he can be the scalpel. We're the meat cleaver. That's that, that meat cleaver weaver. That's me. Let's go, let's go get them. <laughs> I like it. People don't want meat cleaver T-shirts out there. So I, I said this, and That's I'm it. a believer in this, and a lot of people have kind of weighed in on this question recently on whether or not we should be talking about Trump more or less, right? Because there was a debate. Do we show his speeches? Do we talk about all the crazy things he's doing? And I'm of the view we have to talk about the crazy things he's doing, even if we're tired of it, um, because that's how people will know how crazy he is and what November presents. But what do you think? So what what I'm scared of is, okay, we talk about it. We say, all right, we talk about it. And then they start going, say, well, this is his position. This is Biden's position. This is this. This is that. And it becomes like, well, we just vote on the person. No, this this is not normal. This is not what you're used to. This is an entirely different thing. The man has been adjudicated by a jury of his peers as a, a sexual assaultist or a rapist in terms of the word of the judge. He's already been an adjudicated business fraud. We're just waiting to see how much it's going to cost him. You cannot let him up. You can't normalize him. You can't let him off the canvas. Mm-hmm. Not not for one second. And it might not be the most fun thing to do in a campaign. It might not be what I want to be doing when I'm in my 80th year, but it's what's necessary. We don't get we don't get to do what we want to do. We get to do what we got to do. And that's where we are right now. We got to keep the foot on this guy right on his neck. Take our heel and twist it. And never Take let the it heel up. and twist it, which means we got to talk about him. So let, let me ask you about a thing that I, I feel like the Biden, it's hard for the Biden team or they're struggling with a little bit, which is the economic messaging, right? And I always hate to say right. blame it on messaging because everybody likes to always blame it on messaging, right. but they do have good economic data. There was good data last week. It's also true you can't tell right. people how they should feel about the economy. You ran a campaign where the economy was pretty central. So what, right. what advice would you be giving them about how to talk about this? So for two years, the press, the, the financial press, every, everyone said there's going to be a recession. There's a recession. It's yeah. terrible. And people kept reading that. You know what? If you say something long 
enough and often enough, people will sort of believe that. So what the president can do is say, this is where they said we would be. We clearly better than that. But if you try to argue and you tell people you're in a great economy and they don't feel it, they get mad at you. But you're certainly yeah. doing a lot better than, than projections. And you can talk about things like the prescription drug one, prescription drug costs. You can talk about the subsidies that for health insurance that are coming up, the record number of people on health insurance. And I understand that and don't ever use the word transitory and do not use the word inflation. Cost of living. Transitory. We understand. No, nah, that's a stupid transitory team. Transitory. Get rid of it. But we we understand that. We're working really hard. Uh, we hope you know. We think we've seen some benefits. We're certainly doing a lot better than you were told we're going to do. And we and also go back to this infrastructure. These are tangible things that we've been talk, dreaming about this since the interstate highway system. Mm -hmm. And he can do that. It's legitimate. It's bipartisan. It's showing America can work again, that we can do things as a country. And I think that's very important for the president's message. But it's equally important that we keep Trump front and center in this. Don't let him escape. Don't let him be normalized. That's how you nope. that's how we can lose this. Meet Cleveland. Put no a boot on his neck. We got it. We got a That's few terms it. there. We're, we're going to remind people. Of. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me let me ask you while I have you here, but just about the Republican primary, because this is obviously going on. Nikki Haley's been out there every day. She's been going after Trump much harder. I mean, one, this this feels like it kind of might help President Biden. But what do you think and how do you think they should keep using that? I, I don't want to relitigate 2016, but Bernie Sanders cost there's a reason it's one of the reasons that Trump is that. I think this is great that Nikki Haley is saying in a hats off to these Republican donors that continue to support her. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, obviously she doesn't have that much chance, but every day that she's in there, every day that she's on the attack is a good day. And she's putting Donald Trump front and center and you know, a lot of these billionaire Republican donors that I, I, I really don't care for very much. Thank God yeah, I never thought, thank God for well, maybe the Koch brothers or something, but keep her in there and stay and stay on the cutting edge because that's going to that's going to cost him. I, I, I promise you. And I see Liz I'm, Cheney has given us some some money. Great. I'm all for it. We're going to do a cheers to the Koch brothers and Liz Cheney in 2024. Welcome that, to 2024. Okay. Here's where we are. Um, <laughs> right. Let me ask you just about the Haley, the Haley voters, because, you know, we saw New Hampshire. We looked at the data and some of the numbers kind of interesting. Do you think some of those people basically said, I voted for Haley, but I'm going to support Biden. Some of them weren't quite there on Biden. Do you think that's fertile ground? Do you think the Biden team should be focused on that group? There's a lot of groups to focus on. You just have to win the most votes and the right. most electoral votes. Of course. So a lot of people, I mean, people I voted for are Republicans, right? They generally vote Republican. But you, you have a substantial number that's saying that they can't vote for Trump. Guess what? Welcome. We want you. We yeah. can get if we get through this threat to the Constitution, then we can go back and fight over the capital gains tax cut or fight over the minimum wage or, or whatever the fights we had in the past. But right now, uh, Jen, we're in a fight for the Constitution of the United mm -hmm. States. 
And, you know, in World War II, they had the Union cost. They were working with the mafia. They were working with everybody. We had to, we had to win the war. After, mm. after you win the war, you, you settle everything out. So thank you. Thank you, Nikki Haley donors. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much. You, you're doing the Lord's work out there, and we'll keep the old meat cleaver sharp and in action here. <laughs> That's right. And on the meat cleaver, perfect place to end. James Carville, thank you so much for sharing your yeah. wisdom with us this evening. Uh, thank you, Jen. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Great to be great to be with you. Up next, pretty soon Donald Trump is going to have to put his money where his mouth is. And based on what we know about his finances, the E. Jean Carroll judgment, plus the civil fraud trial, could stretch him pretty thin financially. George Conway is standing by here in Washington. Lisa Rubin is going to join us as well. We are just getting started tonight. We'll be right back. We're back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. To this. Donald Trump is now on the hook for $88.3 million for sexually abusing and defaming E. Jean Carroll. That's not to mention another potentially massive judgment coming his way of up to $370 million in the civil fraud case against him and his company. Needless to say, that's a staggering amount of money for anyone to cough up, even for a self-described billionaire. And to that point, listen to what Trump said about his liquid assets in his sworn deposition last year. We have a lot of cash. I believe we have uh, substantially in excess of 400 million cash, which is a lot for a developer. Developers usually don't have cash. They have assets, not cash. But we have, I believe, 400 plus and, and going up very substantially. Now. I'm not a mathematician. I don't claim to be. And let's not forget, Trump's pretty fast and loose with the facts. But it sure sounds like he's going to need all of that cash and probably more to make up for his notoriously bad judgments. And maybe that's the point, that money talks. And the threat of losing it might be one of the only things that can shut Donald Trump up. Joining me now here in Washington, conservative attorney George Conway. He's a contributor to The Atlantic and co-host of the podcast, George Conway Explains It All. And with us from New York, MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, who has covered the E. Jean Carroll case very closely. So, George, let me start with you, because you have a small but important role here. You connected E. Jean Carroll with Robbie Kaplan. There's an email to prove it yes. um, that you put out. So you played a role in this as yeah. well. Um, and this Little. morning, oh, well, it's an important one. It's an important one. There's the email. Um, this morning, they did a number of interviews, and I want to play something that uh, Robbie Kaplan said this morning. All options are on the table. What does that mean? If we have to bring another case, we'll bring another case. You're just going to be more money. So you know her well. You followed. You know we've watched Trump very closely. What is she watching for exactly? And do you think Trump will be able to control himself? 
The answer is she's watching for future defamation. And the answer is he can't control himself. It is exactly what Judge Kaplan said in open court just last week uh, or the week before. You can't control yourself, can you? He said that to Donald Trump. And he can't control himself. And if he uses her name? If he uses her name and says something that's that's defamatory, accuses her of lying again, says the allegation of rape is false, even though it has been proven to the satisfaction of a unanimous jury and to the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, if he does that again, she should sue him again and she should get more damages. And, you know, this this process can continue ad infinitum. And I don't think he can't control himself. He is not well. He is an unwell person. He's a narcissistic sociopath. He cannot help himself. It's not just that he is showing signs of dementia that Nikki Haley is pointing out. He is a, he's a, he is a, a personality disorder that has followed him throughout his life. And he cannot help himself. And that's the reason why, part of the reason why he did get hit with this $88.3 million judgment. He was defaming her. Yes. All night, every night during the trial, outside the courthouse. And knowing he had to have known full well that that was going to ramp up the damages. Because the question, punitive damages, is, is the person doing it maliciously? And what is it going to take to get this man to stop? And he's basically saying, uh, nah, 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 I'm just going to do it. He's saying, I right. don't care. It, 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 is, it is an unwell person who attacks right. a woman unwell. you sexually assaulted and, and, and then acts out in front of the jury. It's re- so, Lisa, let me let's let's talk about the money here, because that is sort of one of the big questions. I mean, obviously, eighty eight point three million dollars, huge amount of money. We're all awaiting the judgment in the civil fraud case, which could be an even much larger amount of money. Does Donald Trump has that, that kind of amount of money on hand that he needs to pay this? And what happens if he doesn't? I don't think many of us take Donald Trump's representations in that deposition you just played a clip of, Jen, at face value. So if you ask Donald Trump, as recently as April of 2023, when he was deposed by the New York Attorney General's office, he said he had over $400 million cash on hand. However, if the Attorney General's office is able to get a disgorgement award, meaning clawing back the ill-gotten gains from his fraud scheme of even close to the $370 million that they're asking for, that plus the $88.3 million he currently owes E. Jean Carroll would wipe out that liquidity even if we thought that that's how much cash he has. I think in reality, the amount of cash Donald Trump has on hand is much lower than that. And that is why, in the past few days, while he is towing up to the line, we have not yet seen him engage in conduct that either George or I would call defamatory. I'd call it provocative, and I'd call it almost there, but we're not quite there yet. All he has done so far, and I don't want to excuse it, is republish other people's defamatory mm. words about E. Jean Carroll. And so far, what he has done is not what the law would consider its own defamation. It is like a weird version of self-control. It's all relative. I did want to ask you, I mean, watching this before the last couple of days, I mean, Robbie Kaplan clearly got under his skin. Um, and all of this clearly got under his skin. You've, what do you, what do you think that should tell us about Trump and how to kind of run against Trump? What is going to bother Trump, et cetera? I've said this for quite some time. I'm going to say it again. Make him crazy. He's already crazy. If you point out the things that he, the reason why he is the way he is, the reason why he is this uh, uh, pathological narcissist is because he's deeply insecure. Mm. He knows 
that he's a fraud. He knows he's not as smart as he says he is. He knows he's not as good as he says he is. He knows he's a rapist. He knows he's a liar. He knows he doesn't want to be exposed. And if you attack him on the things that he feels sensitive about with the truth, he melts. And he's exactly as you say. I mean, he's a bully, but he's a weak man. Yes. He's a weak. He's you know he he puts up this strong man act at the trial in front of the jury. And he didn't actually show up for the first trial, mm-hmm. the one where he could have been cross-examined about what happened in that department store, because he's scared. The emperor has no clothes. Absolutely, just well, it's a, a terrible image, but yeah. I, we can, people can't unsee that. <laughs> but it was you know. it was something Eugene Carroll said that I thought was just really yeah. powerful. George Conway, Lisa Rubin, thank you so much both for joining me this evening. And just a reminder, Eugene Carroll and her attorneys Robbie Kaplan and Sean Crowley will join Rachel Maddow live tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, coming up the next hour. And coming up on our show, you need to calm down. I'll explain why Taylor Swift is sending right-wing conspiracy theorists into an absolute tailspin. But first, Senator Brian Schatz is standing by to talk about how his Republican colleagues playing politics with two very important issues is dangerous. We're back after a quick break. The United States faces a number of very big challenges right now. This weekend, Iranian proxies attacked a U.S. base in Jordan, killing three service members and wounding more than 30 others. The attack served as a reminder of just how volatile the world is and how desperately we need serious leadership. But the debate in Washington about what to do to address the challenges we're facing is exposing just how unserious some of our elected officials are. Take the situation on the southern border. Republicans in Congress have been screaming, and I mean screaming, about the immigration crisis for years. Now there is a bipartisan deal on the table. Conservative members, including Senator Lindsey Graham and Minority Whip John Thune, not exactly flag-flying liberals, are urging their colleagues to support the deal, saying it is the best one they can get, even if if Trump is elected. Seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, not after Donald Trump came out against it. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is now saying, quote, the political situation has drifted whatever that means. And Speaker Mike Johnson thinks the bill is dead on arrival in the House. I wonder why. He did talk to Trump recently before he said that. Senator James Lankford, a top negotiator of the deal, explained it best on Fox News yesterday. It is interesting. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting, a few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. There you have it from the mouth of a Republican senator. And he's right. This isn't a game. And it shouldn't be. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii. He sits, also sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I want to start with this idea uh, that Republicans are treating these very real challenges. I mean, immigration reform, long outdated. Obviously, something needs to be done about what's happening at the border, but they're treating it as kind of a game. Uh, you posted on Twitter this, which caught my attention. I think if Democrats were holding up funding for the defense of three allies, unless we got an unrelated thing, and then we said no to the very thing we demanded because our nominee told us to kill it, the media would justifiably go thermonuclear on us. That said it better than I would say it. But just give us a sense of how crazy the situation is in the Senate right now. Well, I remember you know, talking to a lot of the pro-Ukraine uh, members of the Republican conference, and they came to us and said, look, we don't think we have the votes in the Senate or the House unless we do 
a strong border bill. And we said, great, the president is proposing, you know, this $14 billion emergency supplemental to basically restore order at the border. And they said, no, we need policy changes. And I got in some, you know, pretty heated conversations with some of the more reasonable Republicans saying, why in the hell, excuse me, why in the heck are we tying... You can tying, say hell, it's I okay. can say hell on MSNBC. <laughs> I apologize. Why in the heck are we tying a domestic policy priority to an international policy right. priority? It's, it's, I can't think of an example in American history where one thing is dependent on the other in quite so um, obnoxious of a way, mm. but that was the deal. And so Chris Murphy and others negotiated with James Langford, who has got a reputation as one of the more conservative members of the entire Senate and especially on immigration. So we had a very tough negotiation. And then we wake up one morning and realize that the thing they were asking for was really just an excuse to try to kill Ukraine funding. Now, there may still be a cohort of Republicans in the Senate, at least, who care enough about Ukraine and care enough about a result on the border that they're going to go through with this. But it just shows that the definition of conservatism at this point has flown out the window, and it's basically whatever Donald Trump wants. Well, it seems like what Donald Trump wants is to run on the border to run on the border as being in crisis and not actually have a solution. Don't you think that's a big part of the issue here? That's 100 percent what's going on, because there's no substantive argument left for them. Um, uh, Joe Biden has gone, I think, further than a lot of progressives are, are comfortable yeah, it's with. It's an Let's, imperfect bill. A lot of people don't like it. It makes me pretty uncomfortable. But, you know, for Ukraine, I was prepared to I am prepared to swallow some of these provisions that I certainly would not have written or um, agreed to under other circumstances. But here we are trying to forge a bipartisan compromise, because, frankly, the fate of Europe, the fate of the free world is at stake and Republicans woke up one morning, some of them went to Mar-a-Lago, some of them read a tweet, and now they're against the very thing that they demanded. Including doing something about the border. I mean, you just can't make it up in the storylines. It's hard to explain to the public, though, which is a challenge. I, I did want to ask you, I mean, obviously there are decisions and discussions happening in the Situation Room. The White House and the, the uh, Defense Department haven't announced any specific steps yet on what they're going to do to respond to these strikes that killed three service members. But along the lines of the seriousness or unseriousness of, in the political system. I did want to read you some of the things that some senators tweeted immediately after these strikes. Uh, so Lindsey Graham tweeted, it's hit Iran now, hit them hard. John Cornyn simply tweeted, target Tehran. T Tom Cotton said in a statement, the only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist voices. Now, now we all agree something needs to happen in response, but they all have had this position for a long time. That's right. What's I mean, that about? I think the first thing is, look, this is a terrible tragedy. Um, it is fortunate, um, although any loss of life is, is too much, is fortunate and worth noting that we've lost fewer service members during the Biden administration uh, than we did during the Trump administration. But again, any loss of life uh, is too many, uh, too many lives lost. We have to retaliate, but we also have to manage the potential for escalation. That is a very real risk in the region. It is a uh, tinderbox. And uh, I trust Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken, and the President of the United States himself to calibrate that retaliation. And to your point, Lindsey, Tom, John Cornyn, these guys have been waking up every morning looking for uh, an opportunity to engage in a kinetic action against Iran since I got to the Senate 11 years ago, and that will never change. This is their latest reason for wanting to um, have a war. 
Um, but I don't think that just because they're tweeting about it, that that's the right response. We're going to have to respond, but we're going to have to do so in a way that reduces rather than increases the risk of escalation. Would you be comfortable if they t- if they struck Iran within the borders? Uh, I don't think so. Um, but I but I'd like to understand what they are thinking about um, and how to calibrate the response. I, I think the the response has to be swift and successful, um, but I'm not here to opine about whether it should be in and in or out of the Iranian borders or through a proxy or however they decide to do it. Um, I wait to be briefed. Uh, and we need to give them some decision space. The last thing that the United States government needs is 535 potential commanders in chief all trying to out tough each other. Waiting to be briefed. Quite a novel thing you yeah. just suggested there. I know we're going around the world, but you do work on a number of issues. Sure. And I did want to ask you, you gave a floor speech that really stuck with me. I reread it this morning just about Trump's basic claim that anything he does, he's not susceptible to the law, essentially. This is kind of a part of this immunity argument we're waiting for a legal ruling on. Talk to me a little bit about, because sometimes people think this is mired up in courts. It's not about that. It's about a person who is the commander in chief, who would have a number of um, uh, things at his disposal, not being being above the law. Yeah, I think what's changed since um, the last Trump term is now nobody can say they weren't warned. Nobody can say that this is just a rhetorical flourish and he doesn't know the government or, you know, he's just a showman. Um, what was it? Take him seriously, not literally. I think we need to take him absolutely literally. The other thing that has happened is he's now got white shoe law firms making these arguments in federal court. A judge asked his attorney, hold on, if the president ordered Uh, the murder of one of his political opponents using SEAL Team 6, would that be prosecutable? And they said, no, not unless there was a successful impeachment in the House and a conviction in the Senate. And so what does that mean? It means that if the president of the United States can find 34 votes to acquit, he or she can use, not just violate any law, but use the power of the American military against his political opponents. So this is not just, wow, that guy's really nuts. This is The guy's promising to be an authoritarian and use the power of the government to maintain control. And I think we have to take that very seriously. Listen to what he says. He's telling us what he wants to do. Senator Brian Schatz, thank you so much for joining me here this evening. Really appreciate it. Coming up, is Taylor Swift part of a vast left-wing conspiracy to brainwash the country? Some of Donald Trump's closest advisors seem to think so. And I really wish I was joking. I'm not. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. I'll explain that when we come back. So prior to the 2018 midterms, Taylor Swift was notably and publicly political. 
which kind of became a little bit of a thing after her silence during the 2016 presidential election, especially given the outcome. But then, in an Instagram post in October of 2018, she publicly endorsed two Democratic candidates running in her home state of Tennessee and said she would vote against Republican Marsha Blackburn. Cheshel talked about this in her documentary as well. And for some conservatives, it was downright unconscionable that she would actually voice her opinions. How dare she? I'm sure Taylor Swift has nothing or no, doesn't know anything about her. And uh, let's say that I like Taylor's music about 25 percent less now. There's a big difference between these pol these political statements by uh, Taylor Swift and Kanye. Taylor Swift was a virtue signal to try to preserve her reputation among her peers. Taylor Swift, I love your music. Personally, Kanye West, I'm a bigger fan of his. I wish she would have uh, not done this. Well, Stay away from politics. Well, it turned out that last one didn't age so well. But that aside, Swift has become a little bit more vocal since those midterms. I mean, she advocated for LGBTQ plus rights at the Video Music Awards in 2019. She endorsed Joe Biden for president in 2020. And in 2022, she posted some concerns about the impact of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was shared by millions of Americans. But it's not like she is some rabid Democratic activist. She is a very famous person who occasionally expresses her views, again, how dare she, and encourages people to get engaged. Last September, she encouraged her 272 million followers to register to vote. She didn't even tell them who to vote for. She just encouraged people to vote. That's a good thing, by the way, participating in the democratic process and all. And in the meantime, when all this is going on, her star has continued to rise, of course. The Eras Tour became a massive cultural phenomenon, and she became a regular cutaway shot at Kansas City Chiefs football games, watching her boyfriend, of course. And then in December, she was named Times Person of the Year for 2023. And that is when things started to get a little weird. After the Time cover came out, Trump advisor Stephen Miller tweeted, quote, what's happening with Taylor Swift is not organic. Okay, I mean... And over in right-wing media, things moved to complete meltdown mode around this time. And although neither the NFL nor Travis Kelsey really needs Taylor around, apparently the Democrats do, because make no mistake about it, Taylor Swift is clearly a tool. Taylor Swift is going to come out in the presidential election and she's going to mobilize her fans. So is Swift a front for a covert political agenda? Primetime obviously has no evidence. If we did, we'd share it. But we're curious because the pop star who endorsed Biden is urging millions of her followers to vote. Guys, I mean, are you all OK? Seriously, take a walk. Shake it off, as she would say. I mean, as the right wing conspiracy goes, stick with me here. Taylor Swift might just be an operative for the Democratic Party. Some, like Jesse Waters, who you just saw there, would even call her a psyop. That's right. And Jesse, I know you were on TV right now, but if you ever need a shoulder to cry on, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. The theory goes like this that they're all talking about. Taylor's popularity is being propped up and wielded by the powers that be in order to unleash her fans as Democratic voters and hand Joe Biden the 2024 presidential election, if it only worked that way. First off, yes, let's all acknowledge Taylor Swift absolutely has unbelievable influence, just ask my eight-year-old, as one of the biggest stars on the planet. And I mean, why wouldn't Joe Biden want her endorsement? But where folks on the right make it super, super weird is by painting this as some sort of intricate, deep, dark conspiracy. 
Let's say former presidential candidate and Trump surrogate Vivek Ramaswamy, who posted this yesterday after Kansas City punched their ticket to the Super Bowl. Quote, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall. I mean, what? What are you talking about? Also, he's clearly not a football fan. I mean, it could be that the game was rigged, Vivek Ramaswamy. Could be. As part of an elaborate scheme to get Joe Biden more votes. It could be. Or it might have been that Baltimore had some bad fourth quarter turnovers. If you watch the game, again, you're probably not a football fan. But for an increasingly shopping, shocking number of folks on the right, there's always a mastermind. There's always some larger big state, big institution behind the curtain, keeping conservatives and Donald Trump down. They'll stare directly at conspiracy, but never in the mirror. I've got a feeling our friend Tim Miller is going to have some thoughts about all of this, and he joins us next. The thing about any conspiracy theory is it's all about how you frame it, the information you choose to look at, and the information you choose to ignore. Take, for example, Vivek Ramaswamy's wild speculation that the Kansas City Chiefs are only in the Super Bowl in order to make Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift more popular in the lead up to an endorsement of Joe Biden. It's crazy every time I say it. And as Tim Miller put it, when Travis Kelsey and the Chiefs won the Super Bowl while Trump was president, was that part of the op? Was it a deep state long game happening right under Trump's nose? Have you noticed that win came right as COVID hit our shores connection? Maybe he's onto something. Joining me now is Tim Miller. He's a writer at large for The Bulwark, and he's an MSNBC political analyst. Okay, so Tim, the Taylor Swift thing is funny. It's crazy. We had a little fun with it. It also does reveal something about elements of the modern-day Republican party and sort of what they get wrapped up in. Talk to me a little bit about how this kind of theory, this this run-of-the-mill couple, celebrity endorsement potential, became into this big conspiracy theory. Yeah, Jen, you always bring me on for the heaviest topics. Um, I just, uh, I do have to well, tell you. Well, this does you tell you. It does tell us, us a lot about the party. Yeah. It does tell us a lot about the party. And it's pretty surprising that we've ended up, the Democrats have got the NFL and the culture war. I wouldn't have predicted that 10 years ago. But um, I, I think <laughs> this is what it tells us, is that there's just this deep distrust, right? And 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 the distrust my colleague Sarah Longwell calls it the triangle of doom. Uh, it is perpetrated by these conservative media types like you showed in the lead in. It's, it's perpetrated by the politicians like Vivek Ramaswamy. And, and it, there is an ingrained kind of grievance against elites among, among these Republican voters. So they want to believe it. They want to hear it. So they buy into this complete nonsense. And so mm-hmm. as ridiculous as this is, like it, it is a conspiracy that makes no sense, right? Like what, like how is this happening? Why well, Joe Biden is, is pulling the strings with Roger Goodell and like a, a layer, a Dr. Evil type layer where they're deciding <laughs> that the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl when the Chiefs have been in four of the last six Super Bowls. Like, like, like it's an absurd conspiracy theory, but there is a direct tie to that, to the voters not believing that the election was stolen, to the vote, yeah. these voters not believing the vaccines work. Right. And, and it's because they don't trust now any of these institutions because they're told not to trust them. They feel like they're being left behind. They feel aggrieved at the dominant culture. And so this is a way to act out. Well, that's where the conspiracy theories get dangerous. I do know more about football than Vivek Ramaswamy. So let me just acknowledge that. But uh, Tim, I mean, you, you have Clearly. been a long Republican operative. I mean, how do, how do you get the Republican Party out of the conspiracy theory driven universe? 
Well, that's a tough question, right? And I think that in the far right, there's always been, you know, we all call it the fever swamps. Back in my day, it was like World Net Daily. I don't know if you remember that. There's always been, you know, the type of person yeah. that's on the extreme right is also pretty antisocial, right? And non-sociable. And so they're open to these conspiracies. The big government's out to get you. Don't tread on me. That's always going to be there. The question is, we before now, we had responsible leaders, both in the party, no matter what you say about Mitt Romney, John McCain, George W. Bush, plenty to complain about. No matter what you say about Fox News, even in the late 2000s, there were mm. some things that were not true that they were spreading. There was some propaganda. But the people in primetime, the people in, that were running the party, uh, they tried to direct people towards reality. That The opposite is happening now. Donald Trump and primetime Fox are supercharging the conspiracy. And so there is no way to bring people back from the brink without influential voices starting to nudge them back to it. And that that isn't happening. And that sure as heck's not going to happen this year with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. I mean, not to put a too fine point on it, but I'm going to. I mean, some of these people who are pushing these conspiracy theories, not just the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey one, which, of course, is a funny, bizarre one, but others are people who are in the inner circle. Right. I mean, Stephen Miller, potentially Vivek Ramaswamy. These are people pushing and tweeting these things and pushing them out into the universe. How significant is that? It tells us a lot about what a Trump term could be like. Yeah, this is critical, right? It's a great because if we came home here, you know, there was a Twitter feed called End Wokeness that's pushing this stuff, right? And if it's random people, MAGA guy for, you know, 42, like, okay, that's nut picking. This isn't nut picking. And Stephen Miller is one of the most influential advisors to the president. It's the pre- the former president. It's the former president himself that is pushing a lot of these conspiracy theories. So I do think it's absolutely significant. When you think about the types of people that are around him, um, you know, we were going to talk about the New York Young Republicans. I, he gave a speech to that group, and he's sitting at the head dinner table. And it's him. It's Bannon. It's Gates. It's the, it's this crowd, you know, it, it's the Charlie Kirk, right? It's Stephen Miller. The It's the folks pushing the conspiracies are the ones that are going to be the closest to him. And I think that's a category difference from what we saw in the Trump 1.0, which had some conspiratorial-minded people, but also had some normal folks. Un- unquestionably. And you'll have to come back and talk more about the young Republicans. There's a whole story there. Thank you for your time, as always. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.